Christ is born, glorify him. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Abracatinos, and we're picking up this evening on page 272 of the first volume, under the section from Abba Mark, and we're about three quarters of the way down the page, where it begins with the word, however, he will assuredly come who discloses the secrets of darkness. You see where we're at there, about three quarters of the way down the page. And we've been speaking a great deal about the, the practice of asceticism and how one embraces it, the importance of counsel. And uh, in particular, we've been looking at uh, the warnings of, of the fathers about not embracing a particular role of life and not intending to live it and not embracing a kind of sham asceticism or letting that commitment fall uh, into desitude through neglect. And uh, that this becomes a scandal, you know, certainly within the life of the church, uh, when those who have made a particular vow to live a life or a particular role. And so not to enter into it lightly. And I think this is true for, for all of us as Christian men and women, you know, that we uh, certainly want to take our baptismal vows, uh, seriously to live out the Christian life as fully as we can, but uh, when we enter in to our spiritual practices, that we uh, embrace them fully, and we want to bear witness uh, to a particular way of life in, in the world, and one that is Christ-centered, that is other-centered, focused upon others in love and serving them, and uh, also a life that is uh, disciplined, modest, that uh, where one has one's uh, desires and appetites ordered and ordered towards their proper end and toward God. And uh, all of these things are very important in terms of how we live our life. And uh, it's easy to turn Christianity into, again, into an idea rather than into a lived reality and a relationship with the person of Christ. And our asceticism is, is not meant to be just pure, uh, self-discipline. It is to be something that leads us to Christ and increases our capacity to love him and to love others. And so we'll find warning after warning uh, through, throughout this, not to fall into a kind of hypocrisy, but to embrace what we commit ourselves to. Okay, so three quarters of the way down the page. However, he will assuredly come who discloses the secrets of darkness and reveals the dispositions of our hearts, the unerring judge, he who removes the outer appearance and displays the inner truth. Those who have conducted their lives with hypocrisy, he will reveal to the heavenly church above, before the saints and the entire heavenly army, and he will send them off dreadfully shamed into the outer darkness, like those imprudent young women who guarded the outer virginity of the body, albeit they were in no way condemned for this, and had a small amount of oil in their vessels. That is, they happened to have enough virtues and achievements to be obvious to men, and for this reason their lamps burned a little, but who from negligence, ignorance, and slothfulness were not careful to cleanse themselves of the host of passions that they kept hidden in the recesses of their souls, and whose minds, for this reason, were gradually corrupted by diabolical forces, 
acting in consort with these forces by consenting to their promptings. As a result of this spiritual sluggishness, they met with such an end that they were deprived of the joy of the bridegroom and excluded from the heavenly bride chamber. So uh, a very challenging and uh, interpretation of the uh, story within the gospel about the wise virgins against, uh, as opposed to the unwise virgins who do not have their lamps filled with oil. And, and certainly there's no one way of interpreting uh, this particular story from the gospel, uh, and except that we have to be prepared for the coming uh, of the bridegroom and that we cannot be given by someone else uh, what they alone can possess and what they have strived for throughout the course of their life. Uh, we cannot give a person, for example, the gift of faith. It has to be cultivated. Uh, throughout the course of our life, nor can we give them a love of Christ. Again, this has to be something that develops over the course of one's lifetime. And so when we come to the moment when the bridegroom comes, uh, for example, the moment of our death, that there is not an opportunity at that time uh, to produce love. It's not a commodity that we can uh, buy from another or gain from another. It's something that we, again, we have to cultivate throughout the course of our lives. And so for whatever reason, uh, Abba Mark tells us, whether it's negligence, ignorance, or slothfulness, they, they fail to give due care to their, their hearts and their selves. And so when the bridegroom comes, they, they face the, the inevitable judgment of their lives. And um, Abba Mark here makes reference to everything being known that the truth will be seen and shouted from the uh, housetops, as it were. And this is why I think humility is so important in the writings of the fathers, but also certainly in our life. Why hide from the truth if humility is truthful living? And we are seeking to live in that truth as fully as possible. Who is it that we think that we are hiding things from? We might conceal the truth from people in our day-to-day -day life, but certainly in the eyes of God or in the eyes of all the saints, the, the, the truth is seen in all of its fullness. And undoubtedly, when we come before God, that uh, truth will be seen clearly as well. And even if we've hidden it from ourselves, uh, when we stand in the light uh, of God's truth, we, we will see the things that we've hidden in the deep recesses of our hearts. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think when we read the fathers, it seems so hard and so rigorous, and they seem relentless in this pursuit of humility or their willingness to embrace the disciplines of, of obedience to be humbled uh, by their spiritual elders or their abbots. And when we think of it, though, uh, in light of, uh, of eternity and light of living our lives in the, the fullness of the truth, I think we begin to gain a kind of understanding of it, that uh, we will often struggle in the opposite direction to hide the truth from ourselves, to either through rationalization or through some other means, 
where we, we do not have to acknowledge it and uh, to repent and to turn back to God and to seek by his grace to live the, the gospel in a fuller and deeper measure. And, uh, and so we do well, I think, and I've often tried to communicate this as we read it, to suspend our judgment for a period of time when, we, when the readings are jarring and to ask ourselves, you know, how is it that we are living our lives? You know, what does this say to us here when we read Abba Mark in terms of how we're living our life on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, that are we understanding that our disposition is going to be seen and is seen by the Heavenly Father? And he knows whether or not we've lived our life in hypocrisy. And so are we living our lives as those who are realize that we will stand before God, that there in God there is only truth, there is only light, there is only love, there's no sin. And so why hold on to it or try to hide from it in the present? And so while the readings are jarring and challenging, we do well, I think, to, to reflect upon them and let them press us to reflect upon our lives in a deeper, deeper fashion. And then one little paragraph here left with Abomar. Let us therefore reflect on these things and let us understand them and put them to the test so that we may realize the state in which we find ourselves and correct ourselves while we have time for repentance. If we do this, then our good works being accomplished with spiritual purity and not defiled by carnal outlook will become acceptable to Christ, the heavenly high priest, and will not be cast aside as sinful sacrifice. Sinful sacrifice, you know, that, you know, that which is partial, you know, uh, a sort of half-hearted repentance or half-hearted embrace of the truth will be revealed for what it is as well. And so we, we want to put what the fathers are saying here to the test in our day-to-day -day life. And we want to allow what they're saying to put us to the test as well. Are we living a, a truthful life and a life that is directed toward God? Any thoughts about Abba Mark and what he has to say here? Okay, so we're moving on to a little section from St. John Cassian. Okay, Sue and Mark have a question here. We'll pause. Go ahead. Hey, Father, how are you? Good. Um, it's, it's really true that a lot of this is hard, and sometimes um, I don't like it very much. Mm -hmm. um, and part of it that I don't like is that it doesn't seem to... Uh, sometimes some of these sayings don't seem to leave room for being on the journey and that you're not getting it all right right away. You, you do. You have to do let you have to let God reveal things to you and he will only reveal them as you're ready for them. So you may have hypocrisy or um, have some half heartedness. But isn't that really up to God to reveal that to you when he sees that you're ready for it or the time is right to deal with it. Right. Well, 
I think we have to keep in mind when we do read this that these are individuals who have committed their, themselves to a particular way of life. And this is where we find ourselves in the reading of the Avrakatinas, that they're talking about those who have embraced the monastic schema, the monastic role, and one that is very disciplined as well, not only in terms of the role of prayer, but in terms of the pursuit of purity of heart. And so the, I think the toughness of the writing, especially at this point, is the fact that once you've given yourself over, where you've left the world and the things of the world behind, do not allow it to come to nothing because of negligence or slothfulness that there is not, not only a danger, as I've said, you know, of, of scandal, of becoming a stumbling block to other Christians, but certainly there's a danger to one's own salvation where uh, that one, one has made this radical commitment to give oneself over in mind and body to God in every way, to live in obedience to a superior and then through negligence, allow this to fall into nothing, maybe after decades of life. And so I think the, the great warning about backsliding that we find in, in these uh, hypotheses uh, is tied to that, that we're pretty far along into the text now. And we pre are prepared to think about the ascetic life, what it means in terms of purifying the mind and the heart. And now we're looking at examples of those who've committed themselves on a radical basis to do so. And they've adorned the monastic habit. So in an external way, they've communicated to themselves and to the world uh, that they have died to self and sin and to, to life in this world as a whole, to live for God in the pursuit of, of the life of holiness. And they bear witness to this, uh, to those living in the world and to other Christians. And so those who are writing to them are, are warning them that in, in so many ways, as, as we've read in the past, that this commitment has all commitments and all vocations are going to be uh, attacked. You know, the evil one is going to seek to undermine the commitment to God or another, uh, in other vocations in terms of one's relationship with another or living that in fidelity. And so part of this is a warning that when you engage in the spiritual life, you're, you're also going to experience spiritual warfare. And one of these, one aspect of this is to allow oneself to backslide or take for granted the nature of that commitment or take it too lightly and to not, not sustain uh, the discipline over the course of one's life. We even hear in the scripture, let endurance in particular carry you all the way to the end. And so for all of us, there can be this tendency to fall into exactly what they're talking about here. And so, you know, I do understand the jarring nature of it, but I, I think, again, there is a reason for it. And we do hear over and over again in their writings sure. what, what is held out uh, in terms of what God offers us, which is nothing less than, again, the fullness of love, of life, 
of a share in eternity, something that, again, that is hard to wrap our minds and imaginations around, that, that our experience of love is going to know no measure. And we will come into an experience where every tear will be wiped away, that the experience of loss, of corruption, will no longer be a part of our experience, but now we will share in the very eternality of God. Uh, but by grace and uh, this is not something to be taken lightly uh, nor the graces that flow to us from the cross or that come to us in the sacramental life and so we have to keep in mind you know that the monks have all all of this before them in their formation and their training you know what it is that it means to be a christian what it is to say yes to what we receive in the sacraments and more importantly for the monk, what it is to say yes to donning the monastic habit and the monastic rule. And, uh, and so we, one would expect someone like Abba Mark or John Cassian to be very stern with them, that if you're going to do this, then do it fully. And, you know, I often feel where the church fails today and where the real vocation crisis is, is in marriage, that we assume too much in terms of preparation and formation, especially in terms of the distinct and unique aspect of it, in terms of it being a, a Christian identity, Christian marriage. What does that look like? How does one prepare oneself to enter into it fully? And how does, it, how does one endure in that vocation? You know, is it going to be you know, your uh, sparkling personalities, your sense of humor, you know, attractiveness, is this going to uh, not only allow you to endure in the commitment to each other, but live a holy life to become helpmates or soulmates in the pursuit of holiness. And uh, I, I can count on two hands the couples that I feel that really understood this over the course of my 30 years as a priest. And, uh, and you know, it's not to make excuses for myself, but I, I feel that, you know, we are hamstrung, you know, often in terms of time limitations. And a lot of priests get jaded about doing weddings and preparing couples for weddings and I decided a long time ago that um, I can't give them short shrift and I'm not going to be bound by that you know that time constraint of six months or you know for our, di our diocese that you know I'm allowed as a priest and I have a responsibility as a priest to do the premarital investigation to make sure that there's no impediment and if there is an emotional or spiritual impediment it's my responsibility to help a couple through that, either, you know, to try to prepare them before the marriage or to delay it. And, you know, I think, you know, when I was doing a lot of weddings, not, not over 90% of them were cohabitating, which is in the annulment process, one of the things that they look at and one of the reasons that they say, there was a breakdown in freedom there because in most cases, couples buy a house together, they join their accounts together, 
Uh, and so they're living, they're simulating marriage, but their relationship isn't developing on an emotional level because they've already physically, emotionally engaged in the relationship as though they're a married couple. And so they often become blind to certain aspects of the relationship that later on become an impediment. So the longer a couple has been married, psychological studies show us, like if it's longer than two years uh, that they've been cohabitating, the higher rate of divorce. So purely on a psychological level, it's problematic. And yet priests often don't feel backed up in terms of the formation that is our responsibility uh, to offer couples coming forward for marriage, you know, to see the high dignity to which you are called. And how is it uh, as a church that we really work to prepare couples that should be have something of this rigor here, you know, because marriage is a sacrament. You know, we're saying that it is something that, you know, bestows grace upon the couple. And that is this incredible witness to Christ's give a gift of himself to his bride, the church. It's this extraordinary thing. And yet there isn't this kind of formation that we see in the Evergatinos. Uh, and, you know, it's not the life that they were, were embracing wasn't, isn't a sac recognized as sacrament. And early on, there weren't particular vows that uh, individuals were making and entering into this way of life. And yet marriage, we, we often neglect. I know that's a long digression, but um, what I'm trying to say is that this kind of rigor, you know, of looking at life honestly, you know, why is it that we're doing the things that we're doing? You know, are we in love with the idea of being a monk? Are we in love with the idea of being a married person? Or are we pursuing, a, you know, what Christ desires and wills from us? and entering into it in the way that he desires from us. And, you know, nobody's willing to put the questions to themselves or to have others question them. You know, what does a priest do when, uh, you know, when a couple already has bought a house and they're living together and it's six months before the marriage? You know, again, you know, I know priests that have had a few people move apart during that time and to try to prepare themselves at least spiritually not to enter into the sacrament sacrilegiously, but it's hard. And part of our culture uh, supports it and family culture supports it too. Better to know the person well and to sort of try things out first. And so, you know, I understand it, why they're doing it, but we're not, we're not serving ourselves or others in our pursuit of the Christian life by failing to ask ourselves at times the hard, hard questions. You know, is there an element of hypocrisy or sham about the way that I'm living the priesthood or the ascetic life and the way that I'm preparing myself to celebrate the liturgy or the time and the manner in which I give myself to others and serve them? These are all things that we don't want to ask ourselves. And that's why we go to confession and seek out the council's spiritual elders. And hopefully they're going to help us ask those questions as well as guide us on, you know, in the spiritual life that keeps before our eyes, the love, the mercy, 
of God and what has been shown to us in the cross and in the Eucharist. And, you know, it's part of the reason I've started a group, groups reading these texts, because I think just to read through them on our own, it could be uh, something that leads us into a despondency if we're not reading it in this broader context. And if we don't read the whole corpus and, you know, stop and think about it and allow the authors to, you know, bring us to the end point, you know, what they, what, it, what the beauty is that is drawing them forward. Did you have a follow-up there? Um, no, I don't, it's, I'm, I appreciate everything you said about marriage, most especially um, uh, since that is where my holiness lies. My holiness lies in how I live out my marriage. My spouse is my ticket to heaven. My marriage is. And so um, that I appreciated very much. And I did appreciate very much um, when you use yourself as an example on how you're living your priesthood and the way to apply that, because I think sometimes um, I feel overwhelmed because they are monks and because they are living a life that is not my vocation in that sense. I understand that the monastic, um, we all have an interior monastic vocation, you know, you know, and I get that, haven't worked it all out, um, but the way that they live it as monastic seems like it would be um, different than I would live it as a married woman, oh, as absolutely. a grandmother, which is, you know, at this point, you know, my children are all adults. So I have the joy of, of grandchildren. And so sometimes I feel overwhelmed by it. Truthfully. Yeah, I, I would say that that's normal. And, uh, it isn't, you're right, we're not called to monasticism. You know, there is an interiorized monasticism that is written about by a lot of authors. There's one in particular, Paul Evdekimov. That is excellent. He wrote this book called The Struggle with God. And he talks about this in particular, the interiorized monasticism, what that looks like within the heart of those who live in the world. And it is to struggle with the things that they struggle with, which is primarily the, the passions, everything that would affect us or afflict us on a day-to-day -day basis or have an impact upon our relationships or our response to God, the way that we love. And uh, ultimately, this is what we are talking about, those things that become an impediment to our living Christ-like lives in whatever context that might be. Okay. All right. So why don't we why don't we move on to Cassian and uh, if more thoughts come up, you know, please don't hesitate and we'll we'll come back to it. So letter F on page two hundred seventy three from Abba Cassian. Brother, do you realize how much time you remained in front of the doors of the monastery before you were admitted just now? Please understand that we were putting off admitting you for the following reason. Not because we do not wholeheartedly desire your salvation, as we do that of all who return to Christ, but because we did not want to give account before God for offhandedness or, and flippancy. 
for accepting you impetuously and without scrutiny, nor did we want to make you subject to a more serious punishment in the event you should prove negligent and indifferent in the future, having been accepted at once without serious consideration and before learning of the gravity and the responsibilities of the monastic undertaking. Cassian is a, a wonderful writer. I think there are, are some that uh, present to us the spiritual life in maybe a more powerful way, but Cassian teaches with uh, a real clarity and a, a real gentleness. And I think one of the best of the Desert Fathers to begin reading, in, in particular because he's a Western monk. And so I think he filters all this th through a Western mindset and brings it back to the Western monasteries. And so the way that he writes is distinctively different. Uh, but the point he is making here is a wonderful one. And I think we've just went through this that, you know, they're, they're not making this guy sit out at the door of the monastery you know, to punish him or because they're, you know, they're, they're the cruel individuals, they realize that they have a responsibility uh, to this young man to, to make sure that they just don't re receive him in an offhanded way. Yes, come on in, fill the place, fill all the rooms, you know, as if that has some value, you know, that we could say our monastery has a hundred monks, you know, and that that somehow reflects in a good way on us. And uh, they're saying, you know, that has no value whatsoever, unless we see that there is within you this true desire for God, as well as this true acknowledgement that uh, not only one is called to the monastic life, but also is willing to embrace all that that entails, that they, unless he has that, they are doing a disservice to him. So their responsibility to him morally and spiritually is to make sure that he does not enter the monastery uh, in such a way that they put him at jeopardy, that eventually, because they failed in their formation, he falls into negligence and lives the life half-heartedly or gives up altogether. Uh, I remember, and I think I mentioned this once before, that, you know, John Paul, when speaking about the, you know, crisis and vocations to the priesthood, he said, that, you know, this isn't the time to be grabbing guys off the street and hurrying them along in seminary. You should be scrutinizing them more. I don't happen to agree with how they scrutinize them, uh, because I don't often think that it's very helpful in the long run. It doesn't tell you very much. And, uh, but I think he was right that we are not doing men any favors and drawing them into the religious life or to the life of priesthood unprepared in mind and heart. You know, in fact, you don't need a degree to become a priest. You know, I think that's the whole problem to begin with. You know, that the MDiv, you know, it sort of looks like MD, you know, it's, the part of that had to do with, I think, being acknowledged and recognized in the culture as being educated and worthy of respect and uh, worthy of, of people's attention to what you're saying, rather than really being rooted in formation in the gospel 
and formation in the spiritual traditions in order that men might serve in this Christ-like fashion. And so we should do away with the whole thing and have it, you know, real, really be about what we've, we've what we've been reading about, with a little bit of the other stuff that I think help, help can help guys along the way. You know, have to learn to think in a certain fashion uh, to be able to talk to people within the world. But you know, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know anything about purity of heart, if you haven't struggled, if you have no experiential knowledge about the spiritual life. What worth are you going to have as a priest? And if your heart doesn't burn with a desire for Christ, you know, what is it that you're going to say from the pulpit that is going to penetrate the hearts of, of those who are sitting in the pews? And, uh, and so, you know, the, this uh, monk, you know, puts it very clearly, you know, this is why we're not, we didn't let you in quickly. And I think we need to get back to that. For just as promises of glory and honor in the future have been given to all those who faithfully serve the master, so very severe punishments are in store for those who approach this monastic way of life in a lukewarm and indolent manner. According to Holy Scripture, it is better that thou shouldst not vow than thou shouldst vow and not pay. Elsewhere it is said, Cursed is the man that doeth the works of the Lord carelessly. For this reason, you should first learn the reason why you renounce life in the world. Only if you understand this properly will you be able to learn what you need to do. It's brilliant. You know, if only when you understand why it is that you are thinking of leaving the world at all. Why is it that you want to do this? And, you know, for if it's couples coming for married marriage, you know, why, why do you want to get married? You know, we have this huge percentage of people ending up in divorce, miserable. You know, so why do you want to enter into it? What's calling you to it? And certainly to enter into the priesthood these days is no, you know, joyful thing. People would sooner spit on your shoes than you know, say hello to you on the street, or you're seen as a pedophile up on the altar because of everything that's gone, uh, gone on within the life of the church. And so what, why do you want to do this? You know, even in job interviews, they ask you that question, why do you want to work for this company? You know, and if you hem and haul around, you're not likely to get the job. And how much more important is this question? And uh, in, long, in group, previous groups, I've mentioned when I first started out spiritual direction, I thought, you know, when people came to me, I would ask a simple question, who is Christ to you? Thinking that's just a, a simple question and trying to get a sense of who, who they are and what they believe. And, but it didn't turn out in the way that I imagined. You know, first there was sort of this awkward look on the face, a little puzzled, and and then more than a few people would burst into tears. And I wasn't doing, asking the question to torture people. I was, you know, out of curiosity, asking them, "Who who is Christ? Who's Jesus for you?" And you know, I think when we, if we were to ask ourselves that question, we might likewise have a difficult time responding to it. Who is Christ for me? 
What do I really believe about him? Why, why do I love him? And why would I want to live this kind of life that is put forward in the gospel of all things? And, you know, maybe we should break into tears. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, it seems like that would be a good thing to ask guys coming into in the seminary as well. You know, who is who's Christ for you? And not something that they read out of a book. You know, because it's not something that a book could tell you or another person could tell you. It really has to be something that arises out of your own experience. So I don't want to hear somebody recite to me any more than somebody, people in the, in the pews want to hear me, you know, reading to them a homily from St. Basil. Or, you know, I might quote something from them, but, you know, it's not going to be arising from, from my heart. And so how is it going to speak to, to their heart? So, so last paragraph here on the page. The renunciation of the world is nothing other than a vow of sacrifice, which is symbolized by the cross and, and of death. Know then that from this very day you have died and that the world has been crucified to you, just as you have been to the world, as the apostle says. And learn even better what is the power of crucifixion, since it is no longer you that live, but he who was crucified for you, who lives in you. It is by this symbol and sign by which the master was suspended for the sake of us all, that we must live perfectly in this world, as the blessed David prays when he begs that his flesh be crucified by the fear of God. So, you know, it is no longer I who live I, but Christ who lives within me. You know, do you understand what it is that you're doing? And in some Eastern monasteries, when a person enters uh, on the day that he enters for a very long period of time, they'll put over a pall you know, what is typically spread over the top of a casket, uh, they'll, he'll lay down on the floor, prostrate, and they'll lay this pall over him, you know, for a really long time while the, the prayers are being said, in order to make it clear that this day, he's dying to self, to the world, to sin, in order to live for Christ. And uh, sometimes we lose sight of the meaning of, of these symbols and symbolic actions. But I, I think it would certainly be a good thing for us to embrace in, in the West as well. The Passionist nuns, they don a crown of thorns and they carry a, a cross in their procession on the, the day of their, of their entrance into the, into the monastery, into the convent. And, uh, and so, you know, this is what Cassian is, is saying, you know, do you understand by entering into to this, this is what you are agreeing to, you're saying yes, amen, so be it, with all of your heart, that this is what, how you want to live. For just as he who has his body nailed on a tree cannot move himself to do whatever task he wants. So he who holds his mind captive to the fear of God cannot move himself to carry out the various carnal desires. Just as he who 
nailed to a cross, does not think any more about present realities and is neither enticed by his volitions nor agitated by, uh, by desires nor tormented by the concern to acquire wealth nor puffed up with pride nor inflamed by envy and contentiousness just as he is not pained by the outrages of this world and does not think about the insults and attacks he has experienced for he is waiting after a short time to depart from this world by death on a cross. So he has, who has genuinely renounced the world and is nailed to divine fear as to a cross and daily awaits his departure from this world, has immobilized and made dead all his desires and carnal dispositions. So, you know, Cassian doesn't uh, varnish it here he's saying that it is a kind of self-crucifixion dying to self and to sin not just in the mind but in the way that we live our life if a person who's being crucified is not thinking about these things in this world that get us fixed fixated on things in this world then a person who embraces the monastic life and says yes to this is saying yes to a kind of self-crucifixion. I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to live to complete the will of Christ. And I'm going to die like someone crucified. I'm going to die to uh, worldly desires or to carnal desires and appetites in order that I might be free to love, love God, to give myself in love uh, to him and to others. So very stark and to the point, but also rooted in all the things that Christ and St. Paul and the Old Testament writers said as well. Yeah. Cassian wasn't making it up as he was going it all along. As you notice from the quotes, Paul, Jeremiah, Ecclesiastes, you know, it's all there before us. Beware then lest you wish to take with you something of what you threw away when you renounced the world. For in accordance with the judgment of the master who says, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. He who descends again from his sublime way of life to the lowly and earthly affairs of this world does so against the commandment of God. And is like one who descends from the roof and tries to take something from a house. So, you know, once you've made this decision, again, you know, we're again we're speaking about monks who are donning the monastic habit and embracing this rule. Don't take something with you from the world in in into this life that is going to draw you back to it. Don't take something that's going to become an impediment or that you're going to have to labor to carry and uh, is going to slow your pace in the pursuit of the life of virtue and the monastic life uh, and to do so needlessly. Beware lest again you arouse pride against yourself, which you trod underfoot at the outset of the with the ardor of humility on account of something that you learned from the Psalter or some small passage that you learned from the Holy Scripture. For in that case, according to the words of the apostle, you show yourself to be a transgressor insofar as you build up 
again the things that you previously had torn down. It is better that you preserve to the end the humility which you confess before God and the angels at the outset. So, you know, entering into the monastery, you are humbling yourself and saying, I'm going to live this way, and I'm going to live in obedience to the role, to a life of prayer, but also to a superior. And, you know, if we come back to vocations within the world or to married life, you know, there's something similar there, that one is saying no to something else in order to say yes to the path that has been set before them and that they desire. Yes, I want to enter into this relationship for the whole of life with all that it contains and sickness and health, wealth and poverty, good times and bad times, you know, that one is saying yes to the fullness of it. And it's no, no light thing uh, to be able to, to do this. And, you know, he goes even a step further here that we make ourselves a transgressor when we are inspired by that and we make the choice to enter into that way of life and then turn back from it. We reject the very truth that we said yes to. And, you know, I think in our day and age, you know, whether one's a religious or a priest or married person, I think, you know, the commit, you know, we've made commitments or we're tempted in our day to make commitments have less weight and significant. And, uh, you know, certainly there are reasons where there are real impediments, even the church acknowledges that, where there is a lack of freedom or was, you know, from the very beginning. But I think part and parcel of modern culture, the modern mindset is that when things become difficult or when they're no longer wanted, that one should be free to turn to whatever path one desires. And that, you know, on a moral or spiritual level that there's no significance or real meaning to that. Likewise, take care to increase the patience which you displayed in being accepted into the monastery by waiting for many days outside the door, beseeching us with tears. For it would indeed be a pitiful situation if while you should be adding new zeal every day to your initial fervent zeal and proceeding towards perfection, you were to detract from it and return once more to the world down below. It is not he who has begun to do what is good who is blessed, but he who has remained steadfast in goodness until the end. For the serpent who crawls on the ground is always dodging our heels, I'm sorry, is always dogging our heels, that is contemplating how to compare some evil for us at the moment of our death. I'm sorry contemplating how to prepare some evil for us at the moment of our death, and he tries to overwhelm us until the very end of our lives. For precisely this reason, it is of no help to us if we but make a good beginning, 
nor will our initial withdrawal from the world or our initial fervor do us any good if our end is not commensurate with them. Similarly, the humility which you have now promised for the sake of Christ will not be made secure unless you exhibit it until the end. And so, you know, the, the part that really struck me uh, was at the bottom of page 274 uh, about, you know, adding zeal to zeal, you know, that initial fervency that we have at the beginning of a vocation, a beginning of a call, that we see the beauty of it, we desire it, we enter into it, prepare ourselves for it, and that we are called to add fervent zeal to this on a daily basis, to seek to perfect ourselves in the vocation to which we've been, been called. Uh, you know, just as, you know, we've talked so many times about there not being a passive position in the spiritual life. There's not a passive position in the monastic life or vow or commitment, and there's no passive position in the married life that one has to be pursuing on a daily basis to foster uh, those virtues that deepen that commitment to the other and allow one to, to remain faithful throughout the course of one's life. Sometimes we get sidetracked, you know, whatever life it is, you know, married or priesthood or religious, and, you know, in the building of the things around it, and as if they have the greater weight or significance. It's sort of like the Pharisees, you know, this whole hedge of additional prescriptions that they added surrounding the law that, you know, hand-washing codes, you know, about washing beds, pots, everything, you know, that had this equal value, and they threw themselves into it as if that had any bearing on their relationship with God or their fidelity. And, you know, this can be true in our pursuit of the priesthood or pursuit of married life, that all the things that surround it and that even seem to be something important or that would build it up may be just a distraction from what is at the very heart of that vocation. And uh, sometimes we've talked about this rather humorously about, you know, all the building that has gone on in the church over the centuries too. And a lot of that building taking place by celibate priest, <laughs> you know, that sublimate you know, we can sublimate energy toward things uh, rather than relationships and equate them. And uh, sometimes that go, you know, it's recognized and a person is recognized and, you know, in periods of times they've been made monsignors for, you know, all the big things that they've accomplished or the money that brought, brought in. And, you know, at one point Francis did away with that saying, you know, that these dignities weren't, and, you know, people threw a big fuss about that. And I thought, you know, no, we, we've had saints that have said that for ages, you know, don't accept ecclesiastical dignities because there's a real danger in doing that. And the danger is, is that we, we make these externals equal to what is most important, that relationship with Christ, fidelity to him, love, fidelity to the other. And so, you know, priests can spend a lot of time, you know, building a lot of different things, but not being attentive to what's going on in their own heart, or not being attentive to the people in their congregation, 
and marriages, you know, people can labor endlessly at work to provide for external things for their family, the best of things, education, home life, but not be attentive to the relationships themselves. And so, you know, we find this same kind of warning here. You know, don't don't become focused upon all all of these things that aren't really going to help you endure to the end. You know, you can live in a beautiful, have a beautiful church, but never enter it or sit before the blessed sacrament. You know, and what what value does that have for a priest or you know and or you might have the best of houses or best of cars and and not be very attentive to one's marriage or relationship. And the final paragraph from Cassian, if then in accordance with holy scriptures, you came to the monastery truly to serve God, prepare your heart not for comforts and delights, but for temptations and afflictions. For we must enter the kingdom of heaven through many afflictions and narrow and afflicted is the way which leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. Pay attention to the few and the good, and be sure to regulate your life according to their example. Pay no attention to the lazy and those who despise that example, however many they may be. For as the Lord says, many are called, but few are chosen. Let us also keep in mind that the flock to which it was the Lord's good pleasure to give his kingdom is small. Do not think that it is any small sin for you to vow perfection and yet follow the example of the negligent and the indolent. Wow, a powerful way to conclude this section from Cassian. And the scripture passages that he draws our attention to are, are very powerful as well, you know, about the, the narrow path and that it isn't an easy path that we've been called to and that it is filled with affliction, filled with temptation, and that we are going to have to strive and agonize to, to live it with perfection, to love him fully and to love those that he's given to our care as perfectly as, as we can. And that it's uh, that we shouldn't pay any mind to the many who are telling us the opposite. That this is a hard teaching, you know, this is too strident, this is not what, what this means. And so, you know, don't think it a small thing to vow perfection, the monastic perfection, and then to walk away from it. So, any thoughts on any of this? Any comments? Concerns? I had a question, Father. Of course. Uh, this is more of an exegetical question. Uh, maybe I can look it up in my commentaries, but um, many are called, but few are chosen. What's the distinction there between being called and being uh, chosen? I'm, well, I'm unclear on that. I, I think it is what's shown to us here you know it's those who endure those you know we're we're all called to the life that christ has made possible for us but not all em embrace that uh that gift fully 
you know, the, the sad truth of the matter is that we often can hold the most precious of things within this world cheap and set them aside for things that are of far less value. And so I think the matter of being chosen is our choosing and saying yes and enduring in that choice. And, you know, Anthony asked the question here, do we vow perfection in the baptismal vow? And the answer to that question is yes, you know, to, to live for Christ. And, you know, Paul's statement you know, is no longer I who live I. I I've, I've found this over and over again to be very uh, powerful that the, it's, no, it's no longer the ego that lives. It's, you know, I'm, I'm, it's no longer my own ego that I'm following, but now the I for me is Christ. And it is his mind that I seek to put on. And it is his love with which I seek to love. And this is the narrow path for us. Again, in any vocation that we take. And, you know, what is held out to us, again, is that which is most beautiful. And I, I think the evil one and the, the fathers are never shy about telling us this, the, the evil one is always going to be dogging our heels, as he says in the paragraph above, you know, contemplating some way uh, to trip us up, even to the moment of our death. And so we are to be vigilant because there's always going to be uh, something there trying to draw into question, you know, our, our following of Christ or embracing the path of love. Okay. Uh, Bridget McGinley writes, I was thinking the same thing, Anthony. This was the early Christian's way of life, married or lay, right? And I, I think, you know, this is, had been brought back into focus for a period of time, the universal call to holiness that is rooted in our baptism, that we are called to be configured to Christ, to put on Christ in every way. And sometimes I think we get distracted about that, even in thinking about vocations, you know, religious life, priesthood, you know, we prematurely turn our mind to that question without focusing whether or not we are living for Christ and pursuing him fully as we are. You know, I've, you know, often in my life, I've told people discerning vocations, put it on the back burner and like, you know, Christ be the focus. He's the one who says, come follow me. And if he wants you to take a particular path, he will make it known. But it's not going to come from your own judgment or looking at your talents. It's going to come from your, your focus, you know, uh, being directed to him more and more intensely and through your prayer life. Anthony, is this why the demons even suggest blasphemous thoughts to make us see our beautiful God as ugly? or to drive us away from trying to contemplate God. Absolutely, you know, I think this is, you know, in fact, one of the more powerful kinds of things, you know, to turn God into the enemy or to lead us to see what is good as being evil 
or being destructive as not leading to life or love, to call it into question. And uh, I think we see this even directed at Christ himself, you know, in his embrace of our humanity, but also of this obedience to the Father in that regard. You know, what, why do this? You know, change the stones into bread, cast off this weak humanity, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, or seize by divine right what is yours. And I think there's, so there's always going to be this voice that's telling us, you know, well, why not choose a path where you can be happy? Or if I could just be happy for even a short time, you know, and I died in a couple months, then at least I would have had the period of happiness and would not have to carry the cross that I'm carrying. And so, you know, it's this similar kind of illusion that we're constantly tempted to embrace. You know, God doesn't love you, that this sacrifice isn't necessary. You know, how, how could a loving God ask you or ask this of you? What more powerful way, I think, to undermine the faith within our hearts? Part of the human condition makes us vulnerable in that regard. So a lot to contemplate, I know, uh, but stay with it. I mean, there's so much that's beautiful that comes forward in the writings. Okay. So it's a little after 8.30, and uh, when we close with our prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.